Okay, so today we do finish up our series in the book of Ruth. And the goal really is multifaceted, but I'm thinking of two main goals. Uh, one is, is to learn how to make better use of what seems like the myriad of transitions and change that kind of roll through our lives. And the idea is that sometimes we can get numb to transitions and change, and some, a lot of times they include grief and loss in our lives, and sometimes we just bury that stuff, and it, and it just kind of sticks around and can get infected at some point. Uh, and so we want to learn when we go through transitions how to stop and listen, ask God, what are you trying to teach me in this transition time or uh, this, this time of change? What would you, how would you want me to respond? What are you doing? What are you up to? And for those of us who are willing to take the time, God is often willing to speak to us about that. We ask that question uh, of the Lord. There's, there's grace and there's, there's signposts of grace and hope in all of our lives right now, no matter what you're going through, there's signposts of God's grace and hope for our lives. And we've seen that in the book of Ruth, uh, and that's a reason for us to, one of the main reasons to study Ruth. The other is that we've been considering what we've been calling a gospel-centered view of Scripture. And that's the idea that the Bible only tells one story from Genesis to Revelation. It's about the redemption of Jesus Christ. The, 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 the pointing us to redemption and the New Testament is the redemption of Jesus Christ. And so we we're asking the question, uh, even in the Old Testament, how does this passage, uh, this unit, this section of, of verses point us to the person and work of Jesus? And for some of us, that's a whole new lens through which to view the Bible. You, you maybe never even considered that the Old Testament was about Jesus and how to look for Jesus in the Old Testament. And so we've been learning some ways, and we'll continue with that today, too, to, to, to show us how Ruth, in all four chapters, points us to the person and to the work of Jesus Christ. So we haven't had much time to talk about this, but Ruth is really a stunning piece of literature. Uh, the words were chosen with great care. And there's some scholars, secular and spiritual, who have called it one of the best short biographical sketches of all time. Uh, it's layered with loss and grief and irony and suspense and love and brokenness and romance and redemption. Initially, it's easy to think of it as kind of a relational fairy tale type story where this rich, uh, successful man meets and marries this poor pauper girl. And that's in there, of course. That's part of the story. But the real meaning of the book of Ruth is way below that. And hopefully we've seen that in the last three weeks as we've looked below the surface at the book of Ruth. And what the underlying reason or purpose of the book of Ruth is, is that no matter what's going on in your life, Below the surface, God is doing 10,000 things for his glory and for your good. And again, if we're awakened to look for those signposts of grace and hope, then we can catch some of the things that he's doing in our lives, wanting to teach us, wanting to show us, wanting to grow us. That's the real story that's below the surface in the book of Ruth. Another central theme here in Ruth is, is moving from emptiness to fullness. 
which is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we come uh, to be Jesus followers in our lives, God is moving us from a certain degree of emptiness into fullness. And we saw that in chapter one, Naomi laments that the Lord has brought her back to Bethlehem empty. And then in chapter two, after Ruth has gleaned in Boaz's field and Ruth returns home to Naomi with this basket, we figure is about 40 pounds of barley gleanings, we begin to see the end of Naomi's emptiness. Uh, chapter one, dark clouds, the end of chapter one and, chapter, and beginning of chapter two, the clouds begin to part and we begin to see the end of Naomi's emptiness. Uh, some scholars think that the book of Ruth should have been named Naomi because she's actually the main character. Well, God is, uh, but it's, uh, Naomi is probably the central character in chapter three. Uh, we looked at this last week at the, at the conclusion of the night scene there. Uh, Boaz tells Ruth, you mustn't go back to your mother-in-law empty. And it's the same word, Hebrew word there in chapter 3 as it was in chapter 1. Uh, and, so, and then what we'll see today in chapter 4, most movingly, as we'll see, Ruth brings forth, not out of a basket, not out of her apron, but out of her womb, a son. And it fills Naomi into this whole new place of faith and appreciation uh, and rejoicing in what God has done. She had no clue. Naomi had no clue. Ruth had no clue when they left Moab and headed for Bethlehem what God had in store for them. We'll talk a little bit more about that today. The book ends, as we'll see, with Naomi's life being filled afresh. She and Ruth have been moved from being empty and bearing to being filled afresh with God's grace and blessing. I think it's important, I, I, I made mention of this, that we acknowledge that the main point of the book is not, if you do this, you'll get blessed. That's not the point. 10 plus years of difficulty and pain, uh, the, the main point of this succinct little book is no matter what your circumstances, God is at work. I love that phrase, doing 10,000 things for his glory and for your good. And if we only could see a few of those. Some of you have worked quietly and faithfully in the midst of some very, very difficult circumstances. And your salvation uh, in the form of maybe a loving spouse or economic stability has not come. And we're in the midst of some difficult, some of us in the midst of some very difficult times right now. The book of Ruth is not making any specific promises that if you do this, this, and this, then you will be blessed. What Ruth is teaching us is to slow down in the midst of difficult times, change, transition, and ask the Lord, what are you wanting to teach me? Others of us struggle with the weight of guilt in our lives, having maybe turned our back on God for a season and looked for hope in other sensible things. If you remember in chapter one, Orpah, Ruth's fellow uh, sister-in-law, daughter-in-law of Naomi, uh, Naomi encouraged them both to go back to Moab, and Orpah did. And it wasn't evil, it wasn't wrong, it was sensible. It was sensible to go back to her people and to her gods. And some of us have done the sensible thing and miss God in the midst of that. And sometimes we look back and feel a little guilty about that. 
And sometimes we're like Naomi. We turn inward into, uh, with depression and bitterness and spend certain seasons of our lives kind of lost in self-focus in our own hurt and woundedness and bitterness. Uh, and God wants to redeem those years and teach us, continue to teach us his way. Last week I concluded with the illustration about looking at the backside of a, a tapestry and how the, the, the yarn, the, the strings goes every which way, it's a bit chaotic, and you, you, you have no idea by looking at that what the front side of the tapestry looks like. And so from this place, you know, we're looking up at the backside of a tapestry but that someday all of us will get to walk around to the other side and see the beauty of what God has created in his sovereignty. We don't see it all now. It's sometimes it's confusing, uh, difficult for us, but God is at work. Again, he's doing 10,000 things for his good, his glory, and your good and your joy at this time. And so with that, I'd like to read... Uh, Ruth chapter 4, 22 verses, I think it's 227 in the worship center Bibles or your own device or your own Bible. Uh, it's the last time we'll read, uh, in the near future at least, a whole chapter of the Bible, uh, but I think it's been good for us. Sometimes reading the whole chapter, we'll get to see things that we don't get to talk about uh, in the rest of the sermon, and maybe this time I'll tell you, next week we're starting a series. Did I already say that? I already said that, okay. All right, I'm getting old. So, bear with me. Okay, Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. Boaz went to the town gate and took a seat there. Just then, the family redeemer he had mentioned came by. So, Boaz called out to him, come over here and sit down, friend. I want to talk to you. So, they sat down together, and Boaz called 10 leaders from the town and asked them to sit as witnesses. And Boaz said to the family redeemer, you know Naomi, who came back from Moab, she is selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want to redeem, if you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away because I am next in line to redeem it after you. And the man replied, all right, I'll redeem it. To which we go, oh, rats. Yeah. Then Boaz said to him, of course, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. Let me just stop here and say the context is that when the children of Israel landed in their land, they were each given a plot of land, and it became like their heritage. We're known for our... Um, resume, where we went to school, what jobs we've had, they were known by their family. And so if you lost your land or, or your family line died out, that was like the worst thing that could happen. And so this is a chance for Naomi and Ruth to, to regain some sense of their lineage. Okay, so where was I? Um, six, thank you. Just testing you. Verse 6, then I can't redeem it, the family redeemer replied, because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land, I cannot. Because it's said twice there in the Hebrew, it's, it's emphatic. Uh, verse 7, now in those days it was the custom of, uh, in Israel for anyone transferring a right of purchase to remove his sandal and hand it over 
uh, to the other party. It publicly validated the transaction. Think of a, a judge's gavel coming down. So the other family redeemer drew off his sandal and said to Boaz, you buy the land. Then Boaz said to the elders and to the crowd standing around, you are witnesses that today I bought from Naomi the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Mahalon, and with the land I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Mahalon, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. You are all witnesses today. The elders and the people standing in the gate replied, we are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah from all the nation of Israel descended. That was kind of a common bridal benediction of the day. But additionally, he said, may you prosper in Ephrathah uh, to be famous in Bethlehem and may the Lord give you descendants by this young woman who will be like those of our ancestor Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah. So Boaz took Ruth into his home and she became his wife. And he slept with her and the Lord enabled her to become pregnant. Remember, she was barren for 10 years in her marriage, but now she becomes pregnant and she gave birth to a son. And then the women of the town said to Naomi, praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. That's a huge deal. Seven is the perfect number, and to say better than seven sons, that, that's, a, that's a huge and incredible compliment. Verse 16, Naomi took the baby and cuddled him to her breast, and she cared for him as if he were her own. The neighbor women said, now at last Naomi has a son again, and they named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. Who knew? And this is the genealogical record of their ancestor, Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz. Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. And if we read the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, we see that, that uh, Jesus himself comes out of the household of David. So pray with me as we jump in here. Kind Father, thank you. I pray that you would be the, the teacher here, that you would speak to our hearts, and that you would, um, you would give us insight and understanding into your will for our lives. So we do commit this time to you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I read this, this act, this final act, I saw two major scenes here. This probably, we could probably divide it up into three or four. But I want to give those to you, this, the, the uh, scenes that I saw. And then we'll go back and look at those just one at a time. And so the first one is Boaz holds court. Uh, the legal requirements of the law are settled in court. And then the second one is a royal line made up of broken people, misfits, and immigrants is established that leads to the kingship of David, the forefather of Jesus. That's the second uh, scene in this final act. So let's go back and look at these one at a time for a moment. Number one, Boaz holds court. The legal requirements of the law 
are settled. So we've seen so far, Boaz is a godly man. He wants everything to be done decently and in order. That's the wording that Paul used in 1 Corinthians uh, 14. So he gathers the elders of Bethlehem at the city gate that kind of acted as the courthouse in ancient Israel times. Uh, and, And he gives the closer relative a chance to redeem Naomi's land. And when the closer relative sees that Ruth is attached to the land, the closer relative decides that he cannot move forward with the purchase of the land. And why not? We, well, we don't really know why he decided that he couldn't. Uh, there's three plausible reasons. Remember, because he said, I can't do it, I can't redeem it, I can't redeem it, that, that emphatic nature makes it sound like, oh, no, that's, that's too much for me. Uh, I don't think it has anger in it, but it's, it's, it's definitely emphatic. So there's th- three plausible reasons I thought they're worth uh, passing on. Number one is it, it, it might be too expensive. It might cost too much for him to do that. To have uh, uh, Naomi there, it wouldn't cost too much to kind of care for her in, in her old age. But then if you add Ruth and the possibility of children, it could get very expensive. And then if if Ruth did have children, did have a son, then the land would pass back to Ruth and her sons and and her family, and and then this this closer relative would lose it as his own. The second reason it could be, uh, believing the best, that maybe he was already married and said, no, I'm I'm married, I'm good, Uh, and no, I can't do it. And the third that I think we have to think about is racism. That's a a thing. It's a thing then, it's a thing now. Racism, the Moabites were were both hated and feared in Israel. And so for the closer relative to see, oh, Moabites, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. So I think we we need to consider all those uh, and just throw that out there. And also, we've, we've already seen that Boaz is a type of Christ. We covered this in depth last week, and Boaz points us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Boaz, like Jesus, he steps up, he redeems broken, poor, and desperate people. And with this theme in mind, I want to say to you that you have a closer relative, and I have a closer relative. We all have a closer relative. Well, who's that closer relative in our lives? That closer relative for us is the law. That's the law, the law, the Old Testament. And some of us have grown up in situations, whether it was a household situation or a church situation, where the idea was if you keep all the rules, if you keep the law, then God will bless you. And so I want to say to you that that is not the gospel. I'm thinking of my own house that I grew up in. My dad used to say, there's only two rules. No writing on the walls and obey all the rules. That's what I, that's the context I grew up in. And then, and then he used to say, how come means hit me. That's a joke. And I mean, it's true, and I'm not suggesting that's a good parenting advice, but that's the context that I grew up in. And so some of us grew up in this context of, of the idea that obedience is the goal of the Christian life. And again, I would want to say to you that that is not the gospel. What is the goal of the Christian life? The goal of the Christian life is worship. John Piper said, worship exists because um, 
Mission exists because worship does not. And it's the idea that if we as Christians really worshiped, people would be running to our door. But we don't. I'm not just talking about singing well. I'm talking about a life of worship before God. That's the goal of the Christian life. Obedience is the fruit that once we fall in love with the one who has loved us first, then we begin to want to please him, and our obedience comes as a response to what he has done for us. I think a good example of this would be the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. The last 20 or so verses uh, tell us this parable. And a lot of us grew up with the idea that, that the parable is about the younger son. And the main character of the parable of the prodigal son is not the younger son, it's the older brother. They were both uh, prodigals, both the younger brother and the older brother, if you've read the parable. Uh, the younger son was um, rebellious, and he split and did his thing, came back, and the father welcomed him. Uh, the older brother, however, was religious. His focus was on obedience, and he gets mad at his father. And he says, I've been with you this whole time. I've done everything you ask. And it's as if he's saying, you owe me. I've been obedient. I've been faithful. Now you owe me. That's not the gospel, is it? And the father comes out of the party, and the older brother won't go in. And, and, the, and, and the father pleads with the elder brother, come into the party. Come into the party. And if you remember the parable, it's not resolved. We don't know if the older brother goes in or not. And so he becomes the main character. Because it's not re resolved, you know, he, that, that religious life won't get us into the party of grace. And Jesus is talking to the Pharisees in this parable, and he's saying, you guys are older brothers, and I'm inviting you into this party of grace and mercy. Will you come? And that's why it's not resolved. We don't know if the elder brother went in or not. But that's a picture here of what Boaz is doing for Naomi and for Ruth. The closer relative is the law. It's the same with, with cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the, the Mormon church. It's focused on works. And even for those of us who were raised Catholic, I think I mentioned this, I was raised Catholic, have great appreciation for my Catholic roots. But the, the, the defining theology of the Catholic faith, faith is, is that grace plus works equals salvation. And I would say to you, that's not true. It's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. And so it has nothing to do with our works. It's not about what you've done or not done. It's about what Christ has done on your behalf. It's grace alone, through faith alone. So it's an excellent picture uh, of, of this that we've seen. And that takes us to the second scene in this final act. The royal line made up of broken people, misfits, and immigrants is established that leads to the kingship of David, the forefather of Jesus. The story of God's people always goes back to one of human frailty and God's overriding grace. We talked in the last couple weeks about the Hebrew word hesed that has no English equivalent, but it's likened a little bit to like the agape love of God. It's the ever-pursuant love of God 
pursuing a people who are bound to be unfaithful, and he keeps pursuing us. He keeps pursuing us. He keeps pursuing us. And so that's, that's God's way. That's God's way all through the Bible, Old Testament and New. Contrary to our natural kind of instincts, uh, the way the world in, in, intuitively, intuitively operates, God delights to draw near and to raise up those whom the world considers to be weak and needy, desperate and helpless and marginalized. That's always been God's way. And so the genealogy at the end of the book of Ruth, it culminates in David, and then we take it further and see that Jesus is born of, out of the household of David. The royal forefather of Jesus reveals the aspects of God's gracious nature that are hidden to modern eyes, hidden to people in the church who've grown up in the church, that we don't see how God is constantly pursuing us as people, as individuals, as a church, and as the capital C church. He's constantly pursuing us. It reminds us that, that gro grace flees and moves and flows where the world can only see shame and rejection. Boaz's father was Salmon, who was married to Rahab, the prostitute. And Boaz continues the line of Judah, marrying Ruth, this, this Gentile immigrant woman from one of Israel's ancient enemies, Moab. But she's welcomed in. And Judah, though privileged to be prophesied over as the head of the line on which the Messiah would come, we read about that in Genesis 49, he initiated that line by impregnating Tamar, who was his widowed daughter-in-law. Kind of weird stuff. Go back and read the story. So we see here that the lineage of Jesus is replete with scandalous grace. We see that throughout the whole Bible. Scandalous grace. We could say that about your life. We could say that about my life. Do, do we deserve to be called into God's family and be part of God's plan and part of God's people? Of course we don't. It's scandalous grace that you were invited in to this thing called Christianity. It's scandalous grace that, that I would be. And that, in fact, is the basis of our worship. And we talked about this the first week. Why me? If you've never asked that question, I'm, I'm not sure you're a Christian. If, you, if you've never fallen on your face or on your knees or in your heart and said, why in the world would you allow me to be part of your family? That's the beginning of the Christian life of worship and adoration and, and, and gratefulness for what Christ has done. So the genealogy at the end of Ruth shows the Lord's sovereignty over our private and seemingly ordinary decisions in life, uh, such as Ruth's conversion to the covenant God of Israel. And then her decision to spend her life caring for her mother-in-law, Naomi. There was no promise of marriage. She, she was going as an immigrant to a foreign land that didn't even want her there. And yet she committed to do this. She had no idea what was going to happen. Little did she know when she set out for Moab that day that she would become the great-grandmother of David, Israel's king ancestor to the greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the kinsman redeemer of us all. And like Naomi, we can look at our 
outward circumstances and feel bitter toward the Lord because we don't tend to be able to see beyond our own situation what he is doing and why he's doing it. Again, we need to ask. Yet he did for Naomi. He did for Ruth. God still provides for us as our Redeemer, who is the restorer of life and nourishes by his faithful loving kindness. Again, that word has said as he works out the plan for our lives, for our part in the proclamation of his gospel. We have no idea what he's up to, but we can be hopeful in the midst. I'd like to close, move towards closure here with 10 ways that Boaz's redemption points us to Jesus. If you're a note taker, you don't have room on your bulletin. Um, you won't be able, I'll go through it quickly enough. You won't be able to write it all down. But what I did do is this morning, I put it up on the blog. So if you go to our webpage, there's a tab up there that says blog. And I've been blogging fairly regularly. I hope to do it more. But I, I put these 10 things uh, down on the blog. So you can go back and take a look at this if you'd like to. But here's 10 ways that Boaz's redemption points us to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Number one, a redemption is a necessary act. The only way that the Ruth biography ends well is, it, is if a kinsman redeemer comes and rescues her and Naomi. And because we are by nature, you and I, children of wrath, the Bible says, the only way our story ends well is through a kinsman redeemer, which is Jesus Christ. Number two, our redemption is a solo act. There can only be one redeemer. And for Naomi and Ruth, it's Boaz. We only have one true redeemer, you and I. One name by which we can be saved, Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. Number three, our redemption is a sovereign act. In chapter three, last week, uh, Ruth says to Boaz, Boaz, redeem me. And then if you'll notice, Boaz goes out and does all the work to make that happen. That's just like us. Ruth could not redeem herself, and neither can we, neither can you. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, for, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. We can't do it. We can't redeem ourselves. He redeems us. Number four, our redemption is a legal act. There was a debt that had to be paid to redeem the lineage of Naomi and Ruth. It required a legal transaction. Your sin, my sin, demands payment. New Testament says, for the wages of sin is death. And Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection is a legal receipt for us. We have been purchased, and we are forever his. Number five, our redemption is also a loving act. What made Boaz go this great distance? It wasn't the law. It was love. He fell in love. They fell in love. And the cross is not only a legal act, but it's also a loving act. Christ so loved the world that he gave himself to us. 
John 3.16. And then number six, our redemption is an undeserved act. Again, I mentioned this before, but Ruth is a Moab, a Moabite, hated uh, by the nation of Israel. She doesn't deserve this act of inclusion into the family of God, but it's, it's God's redemptive grace that gathers her in. You don't deserve it either, and neither do I. But God, the Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. And the number seven, our redemption is a public act. Boaz redeemed Ruth publicly in front of this crowd of people at the city gate, just like Jesus died on the cross in a public place. See the parallels? Number eight, our redemption is a costly act. Redemption was costly to Boaz. He needed the right to redeem. He needed the resources to redeem, and he needed the resolve to redeem. And Jesus Christ has gladly paid the price for you and for me. Number nine, our redemption is a final act. The exchange of the sandal proved that it was a done deal, never to be reversed. It was, a, it was done. And Jesus died for our sins. The Bible says once and for all. It's finished. It's done. And then number 10, our redemption is a hopeful act. This was a, a redeeming act that secured the future for Ruth and Naomi, as well as put into motion this genealogy that led to the birth of a long-awaited Messiah. The Bible tells us that you and I have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See all these parallels from the Old Testament that, that point to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And this is a good time. This is printed in your bulletin. The big idea of the sermon, the good news of the gospel is that like Boaz, our Redeemer is resolved to redeem. He's resolved to redeem. Uh, I assume there's some people here today that have not surrendered their heart and their life to Jesus. But I just want to say he is resolved uh, to redeem. And he loves you. And today is a great day to surrender your life to him. As we close, um, I don't normally recommend secular books. But I want to recommend one to you. New York Times columnist, and author David Brooks has just this year written a book that's titled The Second Mountain, The Quest for a Moral Life. And it's about two different kinds of living that he's experienced. He calls one the well-planned life, and then the other is the summoned life. And he says the first mountain is about building up self and ego. The second mountain is about shedding ego and losing self. The first mountain involves more and more acquisition. The second mountain, he says, is about contribution. And he writes this, after decades of atheism, he was an atheistic Jewish guy, after decades of atheism, unsettled by what he calls a magnetic pull of the many Christians that entered into his life, one way or another, he confesses that his pilgrimage toward faith might be better described as a meander 
And that could describe some of our lives as well. We've meandered towards Christ. And I'm not sure that David Brooks has, has crossed that line and become an active, intentional follower of Jesus yet. Uh, I'm, I'm just glad that, that I'm not the guy who decides who does that and when they do it. Uh, but he is definitely moving into a faith-filled life. And it is a good book. He says, the summon life is not so much focused on getting our own needs and desires, but, but being, being summoned to a cause that's greater than ourselves. The summon life, uh, people look outside themselves. They look for a cause, an issue, a problem, which summons their life to be a part of. I can relate to this because the day that I became a Christian, I felt that, that, that I was going to be in full-time ministry. I didn't know what that meant or looked like. I was raised Catholic, pretty sure I wasn't going to be a priest, so I didn't really know what it would look like, but I knew that, hey, if this is real, I'm giving my whole life to this. So, so Brooks goes on to say, the first mountain, we tend to be ambitious, strategic, independent. The second mountain, we tend to be relational and intimate and relentless. On the second mountain, we surrender to some summons. And we do everything necessary to answer the call and address the problem, the issue, the cause that is in front of us. And so the last words about Ruth, she was summoned, wasn't she? She was summoned to a cause. She was summoned to surrender her life to the covenant God of Israel. And then she was summoned to take care of this widowed woman named Naomi. She was even willing to give up her life, really, to go and move to Bethlehem and serve this woman. Little did she know what would happen. Little did she know that she would end up in the lineage of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And you and I don't know what God is working on in our lives. We don't know what he wants, what, he, what, he's, what he's looking for and what he's doing and what he's building and developing. Even in the midst of pain and circumstances we don't understand. And so again, that's cause for us to stop and to listen God, what are you teaching? What are you wanting from me in this difficult moment, this difficult time? Ruth lived a summoned life. She surrendered to the covenant God of Israel. God was going to use her for his eternal purpose. He wants to use you. He wants to use me as well.